Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Cartoon Vine for March 29th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you all on. In about 20 minutes, it's going to be good to have on Dr. Rachel Beitkoffer um, of the Nassican Center, and I probably have not said that right, but we'll figure that part out when she comes on. Uh, she has got some of the most interesting, uh, or one of the most interesting models for political modeling, not just the presidential races, but uh, just general projections and, and congressional and Senate elections. And um, we're just so fortunate to have her because she just released her model this past week, and we can discuss that among other things with her. Uh, but that's about 20 minutes into the show. But until then, we're going to talk politics and uh, COVID-19, if you will. Um, we're not going to do the medical part of it since we're not medical professionals, but we're going to talk some of the polit- you know, political well, issues. Seem to stop anybody else. Well, I'm going to try not to tell you how to wash your hands and, and, and what's, what hair dryers to stick up your nose or any of that stuff, you know. Um, but we're going to talk about the actual um, – uh, or some of the politics about it. We can still get that wrong because it's all opinion and be okay. Um, but, you know, Donald Trump, he gets on TV every day around 4 to – or 5 to 6 o'clock around as the newscaster are coming on. And um, does his segment, if you will, and then he has this little cast of characters he brings in, and some of them are, are um, more valuable than others. I think everybody, uh, irregardless of political stripes, kind of respects Anthony Fauci. Um, other folks he brings in, some you're kind of like, what was that about? And then some you're like, why are they harming their reputation um, but, Catherine, what's kind of your thoughts generally on these uh, briefings? Well, I'm just grateful that he moved them from, like, the middle of the view <laughs> to 4 o'clock because I watch the view every day. I tape it or record it and watch it every day, and I was not happy that it kept being interrupted. So I'm grateful for that. I think that was intentional because I think he just can't stand the view. Um I, I mean, they're just uh, they're just political rallies in closer confines. You know, I, I, they're they're not at all reassuring, um, like we would hope they would be. You know, we would hope that they would be. Front, like, I mean, if you compare them to some of the other um, political leaders who are speaking, they're they're not um, they're not uh, fact based. And they're not reassuring, and they're not frank. So it's like they have none of the qualities that uh, the American people, I think, I don't think I'm alone in looking for some a reassurance as well as some honesty about where we are. And I don't think they answer any of those questions. They're really just an opportunity for him to r- ramble on about how great he is. Yeah, um, it's kind of it's what is is you know so apparent is even when you see all these different governors that get on, I mean, do incredible job like uh, you know um, Andrew Cuomo with the powerpoints they do. I think that really adds another element. But even like you know our own governor Brian Kemp doesn't have a ton of energy, but it sounds at least like he's not trying to do the Brian Kemp show and self-promote, um, you know, irregardless of stripe. Now, the, the one governor, we'll get to him later, uh, Ron DeSantis, he hasn't been on the microphone as much on a national scale, but, but making a lot of news. Tim, kind of what's your thoughts on these um, national briefings? Uh, well, um, 
First, let me say I missed part of what you were saying. I'm sorry. Something happened. I got disconnected. Um, As as far as the national briefings, um, I've been trying to watch these things every day. Some days it's awfully tough. Uh, They seem to have devolved into sort of a mini rally. Or that's what Trump seems to be treating them like. Um, and, and various people, you know, take turns getting up there, uh, like the vice president and all, and beginning their remarks by bragging on the president. Uh, some of the scientific people and military people have done okay. Uh, but uh, I personally have not gotten a lot of hard information out of these uh, briefings because, you know, with, with Donald Trump, you, you, you don't know what to believe and what not to believe. And some of the things he says are just so obviously not true that, you know, it, it's just hard to follow them, guys. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it's... I agree, um, Tim. And Go ahead. And the other thing is, um, he doesn't. He doesn't have a. I mean, this sounds really stupid, but he just doesn't have a very good vocabulary to talk about it. You know, everything's great or everything. It, it's not. Um, there's nothing compelling or um, really informative. It's all very vague and um, self-aggrandizing and. Like I, I said, I think when you were off, is I just feel like he he isn't offering any of the things that we need. Sorry, go ahead, David. No, no problem at all. Um, yeah, he just kind of gets in the way. I mean, it, it's sad to say, but you know, Mike Pence it seems much more um, competent in handling this um, than Donald Trump. I mean, if 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 he would just like he said, give over and let Mike Pence handle it. We might be better off because um, maybe Mike Pence being a, um, a former governor and just somebody that probably is just a little sharper would do better than him. Um, yeah, but, you know, of course, I'd like to have a Democrat in office handling it, but I'm but, just you know using the pieces we've got. Him getting out of the way and letting his own vice president handle it is within the realm of possibility. That's not going to happen. Trump has hijacked those things, like I said, to have many rallies, promote himself, and be the center of the action. And that's just the way it's going to be. When you turn those things on, it's going to be about two-thirds him just standing there rambling or belittling reporters or something like that. He's he's a promoter, a self-promoter. That's what he does. That's all he does, and that's all he's going to do. On these things, but apparently, according to the polls, it hasn't hurt him. Well, and I'll say this: is you know they say this is, these are replacing the rallies. In some ways, I think he's probably more excited about this because his rallies were just his base. He's getting other people than his base. This is kind of like when you hear a snowstorm's coming or a tornado uh, is coming through. You watch it because you want to be informed, because you want to put yourself and the best possible situation to react. And, and so you want some information out of it. Instead, you get his self-aggrandizing show. And, and the, what's even, to me, maybe in some ways more harmful than what he does at these press conferences, and he will have these moments where he does attack the reporters like he attacked one today. Uh, it's the same um, uh, reporter from PBS NewsHour. He attacked her again today. Um, I think her first name starts with a Y. I wish I had it pulled up, but I don't. Um, he, he attacked her again today. Ridiculous. But he goes and tweets about things that are totally off topic. Like today, he tweeted about how wonderful the ratings are, which he doesn't understand. This is not ratings for The Apprentice. This is people wanting the tornado briefing. They're wanting the weather briefing. Um, it, it's not about you. It's about the situation. Or two, today he tweeted about um, Prince Harry and Princess Megan. Yeah. Or I, I mean, who's got time for that? 
I mean, who in any way, shape, or form has time to think uh, about you know the security for the royal former royals? I guess uh, you know no one cares. I, I maybe someone does. There's 350 million people in this country, but I'm pretty sure the overwhelming majority of us don't care. Um, but he finds time for this, and that shows you how unfocused he is. This is. These are the times in between these briefings that he should be getting the information to be passing along best information and also making decisions uh, about things that are important. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if they're letting him make any decisions about anything important. What do you think, Catherine? Well, he always has to be the one making the decisions. I think they're just uh, perhaps um, trying to guide those decisions in a way that is beneficial, Uh, you know, maybe not giving him all the, you know, I don't know. I don't know how they would do that, but he's got to be the one. He's got to be the decider. That's his thing. But yeah, like that whole, that whole Prince Harry thing. I was like, if I need to hear anything about this, there are a million places where you can read about Prince Harry and Meghan. You don't need the president of the United States in the middle of a, you know, pandemic to be talking about it. Yeah. But it's Kim, a further way for him to get attention. Yeah, it definitely. But I mean, I think most people other than us send it along to each other and talk it. Um, I don't think the, the media actually focused on it because they have they have enough time to focus on it at this point. Um, Tim, why is Mike Pence not at this point? I think he would actually have the backup. Thought about invoking the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Him and some of the other leaders push through, invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment, and, and take over this this uh, thing because obviously people are hurting for the lack of inaction, and we're going to talk about that next. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say I believe the vice president probably at least partially lives in the same deluded world that most of the other Republicans now live in. Well, we're winning. Well, we're getting our judges. Well, we're doing this. Well, we're doing that. Well, this will turn out okay. I mean, everything else has turned out okay for us, hasn't it? Even though we've been attacked by this one and that one and we've been impeached and blah, 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 here we still are and we're on our way to getting reelected and everything will be okay. Uh, I really think they sit around convincing themselves of that every day. Otherwise, they would do what you said, but I don't even think that's been considered. Uh, no, of course it hasn't hasn't been considered, uh, and, and they'll turn their backs while, uh, you know, Yamiche Sanders uh, attacked like she was today. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's shameful to watch, but... No, they're 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 nowhere in the ballpark near doing that. Trump has surrounded himself with too many outright loyalists that will stick with him no matter what. And sadly, you're you're probably right. But I mean, these are there are things, and I'm not talking about going back to December and January and even before, and, and the the missteps were made. But even this week, every day it seems like Andrew Cuomo comes out and says talks about how states are having to compete against themselves. We're bidding against um, Florida and Pennsylvania and New Jersey and California, and then the federal government's bidding against us, and it's driving the price up of ventilators, PPE, uh, surgical masks, everything else. Um, And he says it day after day after day, and this is a fixable problem. Catherine, how frustrating is that, that things like that and, and not, you know, invoking the Defense Production Act when it can be done and it can be done today. And if they don't do it today, they're going to talk about it again tomorrow and Tuesday. Yeah, it's very frustrating. And, you know, some of these uh, regional, like I saw, I read an article about Albany, Georgia, where they're having to go to, you know, um, illegitimate sources to get PPE because they they have to get it. You know, they they can't 
they can't wait. So they're going to, you know, resellers who have been buying up the stuff. And, I mean, it's just shocking that the – that and with the, the ventilators and everything, you're absolutely right. He should have invoked the act. He should have um, – they should have centralized the purchasing so that we didn't have this competition between the states. You know, I love – I think he loves that. It's like, well, who can make the best deal for him? Like, it's all about making the deal. And, uh, you know, I mean, he even said, if you can make a good deal, you should do it. Well, don't you think these governors have other things on their minds, too? They have, you know, people to, to – I mean, it just seems like it's adding this whole other level of effort that doesn't need to be done, that – if they centralized it, federalized it, then it would free up all the people who are trying to manage the, these these acquisitions. It's just ridiculous. It's uh, embarrassment of incompetence. David, have yes. you noticed that Trump is attacking blue state governors? Yep. Have you noticed that? I mean, uh, he he told Pence not to call the governor of Michigan, Governor Whitner, uh, says she doesn't have a clue, and he he didn't even say the governor. He said, "Don't call the woman in Michigan." That that's yeah, what the he woman said in Michigan. Um, he he has he has had cute things to say of in at least especially in private about Cuomo. He's he's angry with him because he feels that Cuomo is stealing his thunder. He has uh, said that calling Governor Inslee out there in Washington State, one of the front line states in this thing, said that's a waste of time. Um, and you, you know he, it, 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 it's all it's all a political thing with Trump, and he's running for re-election, and this is the, in his mind, the hand he's been dealt, and he's going to use this hand to turn it to his advantage, and that includes attacking the governors, and really, guys, the governors are the front line defense of this thing. Uh, because they certainly don't have a coordinated effort uh, from the federal government right now, so uh, basically they're they're all on their own out there pretty much, and uh, the numbers well, are showing it. And that's what's so crazy is if the federal government was doing its job properly, the governors wouldn't have to um, have such a a role in this. I think. I mean, I don't understand why. You know, people in the Trump administration don't sit there and write down everything Andrew Cuomo says and then put it in action before the 5 o'clock briefing and then basically talk about what they just did. I mean, it's kind of like the answers to the test are, you know, right there. Copy them, you know. Uh, I'm sure the people in New York would be fine if you did that. Uh, but now let's talk about the other side. We've talked about some governors that, you know, have been doing a good job. But let's talk about Ron DeSantis. Um no, and that's somebody I think Trump really is listening to on this, uh, is the governor of Florida. They were so slow to act. They didn't shut down spring break. They still don't have a shelter-in-place order. They still haven't really closed down the beaches. It's been county by county that's closed down the beaches. And I saw a picture of how Duval County, where Jacksonville is, has closed the beaches. And then St. John's County, the next county down, had – no close order, and people were everywhere. I mean, this is not, you know, two people walking on the beach, and then they pass two other people, like you might walk on some trail or in your neighborhood, and you're still safe. This is people, you know, packed together like Fourth of July, that scene from uh, Summer Vacation, the old movie with John Candy. I mean, there are people everywhere. Um, Ron DeSantis, uh, why is that someone, Catherine, that Trump seems to be listening to? Because it's Florida, <laughs> and he thinks mm-hmm. he, want, he wants to win. And plus, he, you know, he's he he. I think he, you know, for for him, it's all about like winning and the economy. And so, you know, 
tourism is good for the economy. And, you know, he's got stakes in Florida uh, tourism. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't understand how, how he thinks at all. But um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's Florida and he wants to win Florida. So he wants to buddy up with DeSantis. And uh, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? Well, well Catherine, well, before we talk, we pass it to Tim, oh, though, sorry. you're right. I think he wants to win Florida. But if that's the case, he's doing a terrible job of trying to win Michigan. But, but Tim, before we go to you, we're going to go to our guest. And we're so glad to welcome on to the show uh, Dr. Rachel Beitkoffer. Welcome, Dr. Beitkoffer. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, great. glad to have you on. Well, um, I think you've been on a lot of sources uh, lately, news sources, because of your exciting work. But uh, let's just start off. Tell us about your background in politics. Yeah, well, so I actually don't have a background in politics per se, but I do have a background in political science. I um, took the time to go get a Ph.D. at the University of Georgia, uh, following up on my uh, bachelor's degree from University of Oregon, and I just finished that in 2015. Started off um, my teaching and academic career at a small liberal arts college here on the peninsula, uh, Hampton Roads, Virginia. That's where I've been for the last couple of years and, and got my, um, you know, started doing national election forecasting and analysis, and now I'm, you know, kind of on this different track, and I'll be leaving the university and, and just doing election stuff from here on out. Yes, I noticed that you went from Oregon all the way across the country to Georgia. Um, w- was that just a plan to try to get a completely different flavor of politics or just two universities you want to attend? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it was a bonus, really, to go, I think, to the South to get my education. I mean, definitely, definitely made me a better professor, a better researcher, a better academic, I think, to have done that. Um, To some degree, you apply broadly to Ph.D. programs. Um, You know, it's kind of a crapshoot as to where you'll get in. And uh, University of Georgia was a good choice for me. It's a a really good program, and it's in a good place in Athens down there. And, of course, it allows me to know what kudzu is. So. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Well, um, let me uh, talk about the next question for you. You're leaving your teaching work, and you're going to be working at the Nikasin Center. I may have said that wrong. Tell us about your work there at that center. Yeah, so it's it's actually the Niskanen Center, and and you know it's, it's like everything else I work for hard to pronounce. You know, my I married a hard to pronounce last name, and I'm leaving a hard pronounced um, you know other place. So I have a long tradition of of just making radio host uh, struggle to pronounce the things I'm affiliated with. So I apologize about that, but um, yeah, it's gonna be. For me, I've already been affiliated with them for a long time, um, at least loosely, but I will be doing basically what I've been doing in terms of the national forecasting and election analysis stuff, and um, now I'll be just, you know, I'll be doing it under their banner, and, and they're based in D.C. It's a think tank out in D.C., and, um, you know, I will not be university teaching anymore, which will free me up a lot to do a lot more of this election research and a lot more um, work on that um, front end, front line. So it's going to be really a great fit for me. Yes. Well, we're going to get more into those models and that work in a minute, but I did want to ask you an academic question. Since you are still currently a college professor, um, doing now online classes for the rest of the semester. I'm a K-12 teacher at a college and career academy. I'm doing online classes. My son's taking online classes. That's what everybody's doing, except for another school in your um, state, <laughs> at Liberty University. Um, they said, and I think they're still doing online classes, but they're returning to the dorms. They're having their meal plan happen. Professors have to do in-person office hours on campus. As a teacher, what do you think of that decision? I think it's a it's a living, breathing lawsuit liability is what I think, right? I mean, you make these people come to campus, especially the faculty. I mean, you know, one of these things that we're learning about the virus is that in, in terms of the aggregated data, yes, 
the probability of somebody who's younger and healthy and doesn't have an underlying health condition of dying if they contract the virus is fairly low. But we also know that people who um, don't have underlying con health conditions and who are young are dying, right? So, you know, if Falwell, you know, ends up pulling the wrong lotto ticket and, and one of these faculty members dies uh, or one of these students dies and he has forced them into this situation, I mean, I just seems seems like he's risking an awful lot legally. Yes. Well, I'm going to ask my only political question until I pass it over. And I've listened to a lot of interviews you've done recently, and you talk about democratic messaging, that it's not uh, nearly as maybe good or succinct as far as the messaging, not the plans, um, as Republicans. Kind of tell us um, what Republicans are doing wrong – I'm sorry, what Democrats are doing wrong and what they can do better moving forward on messaging. Yeah, and this is a systemic problem from the top to the bottom of the Democratic Party and long term, something that spans multiple decades. Um, but, you know, I like to say that, you know, you can think about electioneering between the two parties as the Republicans drive a Ferrari and the Democrats drive a Fiesta, right? I mean, it's just that, that much of a gulf between what they're doing. And one of the things that Democrats struggle with in, um, in specific amongst many different areas that they struggle is this messaging component. And uh, within that messaging component, one of the ways that they struggle is the way that they frame their messages. So Republicans like to talk to people's guts. Uh, they like to make their um, frames or their um, messaging um, topics or approaches are, are based on what we call motive messaging where uh, Democrats think that everybody that they're talking to is like them, highly informed, highly logical, highly policy and analytically based, which is just not the case. I mean, most voters are not super into policy. They're not going to be super motivated by policy. If they were, they'd already be reliable, regular voters. So um, Democrats fail there. And then the other way that Democrats fail is that Republicans really make, for voters who are casual about voting or who aren't necessarily um, people you can sh you could um, count on to show up in a, you know, maybe you can count on them to vote for president, but they may not show up in a state legislative race. Uh, Republicans find a way to, to make uh, the voter connect what we call stakes, right? So the way you do that is, is you know, for it's, it's a sad thing that voters don't care about state and local politics, but it's a known fact, and you, and you can't make them care. So a good way to get them to engage is to say, hey, you know, these, you know, issues that maybe state legislatures don't deal with, like abortion and guns and, um, you know, Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi, they may not actually logically have a lot to do with what the state legislatures could be dealing with, mostly traffic and school budgets and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, that's what Republicans frame their motive uh, messages on, and it seems to work really good for them because they get great turnout. Uh, Catherine, go ahead and, and ask Dr. Botkoff for some questions now. Thank you so much for being on with us tonight. I know we're all, <clears throat> I know I'm sheltered in place here in Atlanta, and it's just really nice to have a conversation with some other people for a change. I'm, I'm sort of, <laughs> yeah, you know I what I mean? Like, I it's that. just nice to, we, we all, yeah. we're all watching all this, you know, unfold on television, but it's nice to have a chance to sort of talk through it. Um, I, 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 I agree with you 100% about um, us Democrats and our, our lack of leadership on messaging. It's very frustrating for a lifelong Democrat to watch it all happen. Um, and I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, how we emphasize, I, I absolutely 100% agree with you about the importance of local and municipal and you know, regional or, you know, statewide election, uh, statewide leadership and, and um, elected officials. I always say that when, when I used to work in um, advocacy, people would ask me what the hardest thing I had to do was, and I always said, convincing people that they should be paying attention to their state legislators because so mm -hmm. much happens at the state level. So how do we, um, I mean, with, I mean, I'm not, I'm not averse to, Stealing Republican, uh, you know, strategies. How do we, um, it, how do we encourage people and engage people at those levels 
because it is so important. I, I, I mean, in some ways it's more important as well as what they do, but it's also building our bench for the future is how I look right. at it. So how do yeah, we yeah. do that better? Yeah, I mean, to you know, it's, to some degree, it's about you know, it's about taking it's 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 about making things a little bit hyperbolic, right? I mean, the way Republicans talk about like this, uh, Virginia. Here's a great example, right? Virginia just flipped over to total Democratic, and that meant for um, the first time after a decade of stymied effort. I mean, we've, the state's basically been under Democratic governance. Uh, in the governor's house for eight years, you know, um, you know, not quite that long, but you know, uh, two administrations back to back. No movement on gun control though, because the Republicans controlled the General Assembly until this 2019 uh, put the capstone on the blue wave from 2017, and they flipped both chambers, right? And so everyone knows, okay, gun control is coming, and what and what it's going to be doing is, you know, pretty pretty modest. It's finally going to bring the uh, background check system full circle so there's no you know gun show loophole private sale loophole and you know the red flag stuff has become all the rage now ever since the uh, parkland shooting so this idea that if somebody has known you know markers maybe people should be able to take their guns you know the gun judge should be able to intervene and take your guns right um so those are the two proposals that are really coming down the chute but the way that the Republicans were talking to their voters through the whole 2019 election cycle was, you know, Democrats are going to, if we if they take control of the assembly, they are going to take all your guns, right? I mean, it didn't logically make sense. It wasn't what Democrats intended to do, but it's what made people upset enough to show up to vote. And they did, they did actually hold off a couple of seats that should have flipped to the Democrats, you know, with that heightened turnout. So, you know, Democrats don't do that. They want to be, they don't like to ask the truth. They always assume voters will know, which, number one, they won't. <laughs> like, the voters are never right. as smart as we are, okay? And they don't want to go hyperbolic. They they are super turned off by that. And to some degree, we don't, you know, Democrats don't want to do what, what, what happened to Republicans because, you know, when we think about what happened to the Republican Party, the reason they had a civil war and the reason that Donald Trump is in charge of it now is that some of that hyperbolic campaign and media propaganda drove them nuts, right? So, you know, I'm, not advoc- I'm certainly not advocating that Democrats go like the full Monty and just draw it because it is psychologically manipulative to a degree, it's psychological warfare, frankly, um, what Republican campaign consultants and what I call fear capitalists in the media and the Internet do to these voters. So I think you have to be socially responsible. That said, it's kind of like nominating either Bernie Sanders, a socialist, or Joe Biden, who's just old and boring. There is a ton of gray area in between, you know, what they're doing now and doing what Republicans do. So. You know, you've got to talk to voter, that voter who doesn't give a shit about, or I'm sorry, I don't know if I could say that, give a poop about state legislative elections. You have to find a way to make them care. And it's very difficult to do when you're talking about arcane, you know, oh, there might decrease Planned Parenthood funding by 2% or 10%, right? Just tell the voter they're going to get rid of legal abortion in the state. It's not true. Okay, it's an oversell, but that will get a lot of these marginal millennial and Gen Z um, women to show up, right? If they think their right to an abortion hangs in the balance, they're much more likely to show up. So that's um, practically how you utilize, uh, and again, it's not, it's not trying to get the horse to drink water for the first time, as you just pointed out. I'm suggesting Democrats merely look at what Republicans have been doing for a couple decades now to get massive turnout on their side and start adapting some of those techniques. That's great advice, and I agree with you. I think uh, we do ourselves a disservice by um, being wishy-washy on things and not talking directly about specific issues. I'm going to turn it over to Tim. It may come back around to me, but thank you so much. I really appreciate your insight. Tim? You're welcome. You're welcome. Good evening, uh, Dr. Bide Coffer, and thank you for being on with us tonight. 
Um, one quick bit of housekeeping. I, I, I do want you to know that I quite often engage in what shall we shall refer to as uh, colorful metaphors when I'm <laughs> talking about politics and the opposition party, so you feel perfectly free to do so oh, here. There we go. There we that, go. And i got to say, be, you guys are making me feel that. a little homesick for my time in Georgia, too, with all these fabulous, colorful Georgia accents that I'm hearing. So. <laughs> yeah, we, we, I certainly can't deny the part of the country I come from, that's for certain. <laughs> and, you sh- um, and you shouldn't. It's lovely. So. <laughs> you, you, you said uh, recently that a Joe Biden nomination makes it more certain that the Democrats will win the election this year. Why is that? Yeah, so more certain um, insofar as we, we started with a field of 20-something candidates. We got down to two, and then it was between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And Sanders was ultimately an extremely risky proposition for Democrats because – He is, uh, with that socialist label, almost certain to invoke – he would have been um, almost certain to invoke uh, panic within the other Democratic candidates, the Senate, the House candidates, um, the incumbents defending those 40 seats, plus the frontline ones that are trying to gain. And what would have happened, I'm, I'm all but certain, is that the um, candidates in in those situations would have spent their time running two races. They would have been running against Trump, and then they would have also been running against socialism, right? And the Republicans are so shrewd at at campaign, um, you know, they're just very strategically shrewd, that they would have boxed in a lot of these candidates and gotten them talking as much as possible about socialism, because the more they're talking about that, the less that they're they're tapping into that referendum element for Trump, right? And it just would have been, in my opinion, a disaster because the forecasting work that I do, the modeling and um, the predictions that are, are generated by it, it's powered by a pretty um, you know powerful assumption, and that assumption is that there's a boat that's got, you know, 12 oarsmen, and they're all rowing in one direction, right? <laughs> and if you change that and they start rowing in circles, like, that's that's a whole different ballgame. So, you know, that's where Sanders' nomination really ran into problems. And whether or not a, um, a, so, uh, uh, you know, the American electorate could stomach somebody who, you know, could very effectively be hung with a, a, a pretty credible, um, you know, moniker of socialist, we'll never find out. But my, I do know how the Democratic Party's uh, mainstream and establishment would have reacted to that type of nomination, and I just can't help but think it would have been a, a, just an abject disaster for the party. So I do think that Biden's um, as a nominee between those two is a much uh, more secure bet. It allows the boat to go in one direction, but I do think, too, that, you know, because he is not the most inspiring of all candidates uh, from the field, that, you know, they probably want to consider seriously a uh, more invigorating running mate for him. Speaking of which, in looking (laughs) back, in looking back, historically, running mates have not meant as much it, it it was more focused on the person at the top of the ticket although like in 1960 there's no doubt that Lyndon Johnson delivered the state of Texas to John Kennedy there's no doubt that Joe Biden himself provided the foreign policy chops that uh candidate Barack Obama lacked uh so who would be a good vice presidential pick for Joe Biden so election traditionalist and, you know, all the old models would say, well, you want to go with Amy Klobuchar, right? Because you mm-hmm. want a woman, it's the year of the woman, and she's from Minnesota, it's the Midwest. Uh, Minnesota itself is not going to be a competitive state, but it's adjacent to the three that the Democrats need to reclaim in order to reclaim the presidency. And she overperformed Obama even in 2012 in her election up there in Minnesota. She's, in my opinion, would have been of the 20 candidates, you know, or so that ran would have been uh, probably an ideal nominee for the party. Uh, You know, these things are largely determined by name ID, and that's why. 
it's not an accident that we started with Biden and Sanders and we ended with Sanders and Biden, right? Um, but you know, in terms of what my research suggests is that we've got a party now uh, where you know turnout is marginal for certain elements of the Democratic coalition, voters of color, particularly uh, black voters, because. Uh, black voters appear to be less sensitive to what I call the Trump effect, and, and there's some fascinating research that adds a theoretical explanation to that, which is a depressing explanation, but it was uh, I was really excited when it came across my Twitter feed because I had seen in the data I've been analyzing since 2016 that you know, we were seeing large turnout surges for whites, especially college-educated whites, and also um, significant surges for Asian and Latino voters. And yes, we were seeing turnout increases for black voters, but the, they were um, observably smaller than the turnout increases for the other groups. And I remember thinking, that's interesting. I wonder why. And then I found this work from a political scientist um, named Davin Phoenix, and his argument was that black voters are less responsive to the Trump effect because they, of institutional racism and long-term, uh, basically, abuse of the system from the system has, you know, decreased their expectations from the system so much so that when it lets them down, they are less surprised, right? So whites mm -hmm. are like, oh, my God, America, you elected Donald Trump? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Whereas blacks are like, yeah, yeah, it's Sunday, you know? Um, so, um, you know, knowing that in the, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, and this gets into the weeds of my research, that in the polarized era, what's going to determine if it's Trump or Biden that wins this election is the composition of the electorate on election day, how much of it goes to the two-party nominees and not to third-party candidates, and how much of it is, you know, um, of, the, of the types of voters that will cast ballots for Democrats. They might be Democrats, they might be left-leaning independents or independents that vote for Democrats, but ultimately, you want that electorate to look Democratic-friendly, all right? And you know the turnout is, um, you know, really for college-educated whites. Those are the people that Klobuchar would best pull in, but turnout already for that group is going to be high. Turnout could be more variable for African Americans, for Latinos, for young people. So those are the groups you want to massage. And, you know, in my opinion, that, that has to be looking at people like Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams that add you know, number one, it's a trifecta. You get ideological diversity. You get a liberal to balance Biden's moderation. You get racial diversity. You get gender diversity. And both of those women, by the way, are, are interesting, right? Where Biden mm -hmm. is just kind of blah. Biden or uh, Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams both are um, charismatic. Uh, and I think, you know, that, that's a ticket that needs, it could use some charisma. All right. I want to ask you now uh, one more question, and, and it's about a state. Um, on your latest model, you show Joe Biden winning Arizona. And I was wondering, do, does Mark Kelly's candidacy play any role in that? It does, and I'm really glad that you asked that because, you know, I um, I do argue largely fundamentals matter and candidates can't, you know, the, candidates aren't that important, but that doesn't mean that they don't matter, right? So a lot of people misinterpret what I argue about candidates. My argument with candidates is this, okay? You can't take a candidate and override the fundamentals with it, um, Amy McGrath in Kentucky Six last year is a great example of that. And even I found myself falling in love with Amy McGrath, and I overrode my own model to handicap her winning that race, even though my model was quite confident that she couldn't do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so you can't take a candidate with really great assets and then have them override these new demographic fundamentals that, that are the basis of my research. But when the model is already, you know, the, the demographics are already going your way and you throw in someone like Mark Kelly, a NASA, you know, former astronaut with the celebrity spouse, with the compelling history, <laughs> I think it could help, yeah. All right. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes, well, Dr. Bikehoffer, I did want to ask about one more question. And that is, in your model, I think you still have Texas as 
remaining Republican. Now, we know that your state that you currently reside in, Virginia, switched over. Look like North Carolina was. Nevada and Colorado seemingly have. You have Arizona flipping this time. But Texas is the one, to, to quote, I think it's Mortal Kombat, finish him. If you wanted to finish the Republican Party and your Democrats, you take away Texas. Um, oh, yeah. What are the things that are keeping Texas Republican for another cycle, and what's going to have to happen to cause that to finally flip blue, which Roy Textera predicted you know, nearly, gosh, seemingly right. 15 years ago? Yeah, yeah, purely lack of imagination over there in Texas, right? Because the truth of the matter is, like, the demographics are already there in Texas now with this uh, realignment of, of white college-educated college educated voters and white college-educated voters. The suburbs of Houston and Dallas are just ready to pop, and, and the Democrats left – you know, a good six. I mean, there's a, a total of nine or ten seats there in the House that I'll be focusing on. My forecast um, will be highlighting when it comes out here in a couple of weeks for the House. But there's a good six of them that are, are really primed to pop. And, uh, of course, the state legislature there, too, some seats in the state House that are really competitive as well. And, and honestly, like, if the Democrats understood what, just how rich and how, how much potential – is. I mean, what, they, what they're lacking there is like a Bloomberg-type investment in Latino turnout. But, it, but, you know, a lot of it, too, is about circling to the beginning of our conversation, revamping the messaging. I mean, they, they, we talked a little bit about how um, I would revamp the targeting, you know, the messaging, the motivation, the stakes, and the emotive stuff. But also moderate messaging, you know, you can't, for 20 years now, Democrats have, have done moderate messaging as what I call this apologetic Democrat model, right? So their version of a moderate is basically to go send a candidate out. They, they run them as a quote-unquote fiscal conservative, you know, uh, when their opponent attacks them and says, you know, you can't vote for this person, they're a liberal Democrat – they say, oh, no, no, I'm not one of those Democrats. I'm a fiscal conservative, right, which is just like that. The whole strategy is so fundamentally you know, screwed up. It's, it's set, set up to fail. Um, I think like when you look at like Georgia, when you look at Texas, when you look at North Carolina, those three places that are demographically just moving in the right direction but not quite there, like the Democratic brand needs to change. And in order for it to really change, that whole approach to moderate campaigning needs a holistic makeover. And they need to campaign from a position of strength, right? Um, I would say like a version of, Demo of democratic campaigning. I mean, it should be pretty easy, too, for a moderate to come out and say, you know, I'm a moderate Democrat, I'm a pragmatic Democrat, um, you know, but I am a proud Democrat. I think democratic economics are, you know, built the American middle class, let me tell you the story, right? I mean, it's not a hard story to sell, and certainly the economic um, record for Republicans is not hard to dissect and to to frame in a negative light, but no one has ever made that case in these um, competitive races, and I just think that that's been a real disaster for the party for 20 years. They've, you know, voters have never heard a compelling case in these marginal or frontline races, and until Democrats change that, you're going to be looking at, you know, near misses in places like Texas. Yes. Well, Catherine, before we go, do you have another question? Um, I do so not. I was going to ask about. I was going to ask about the VP choice, and we covered that. Thanks, Tim. So I'm I'm done. Good deal. I'm off that. The professor so was thorough. <laughs> well, well, Dr. Bytecoffer, before we leave, we wanted to give you the opportunity if people want to read about your work at the center, see your projection, or just follow you on social media. Share that with our listeners right now. Yeah, so my Twitter handle is at Rachel Bittecoffer, and that's spelled R-A-C-H-E-L-B-I-T-E-C-O-F as in Frank E-R. And I do a lot of commentary on my Twitter every day. Um, my work is now posted up on the Niskanen website. You will find a ton of stuff for me by Googling my name, um, you know, lots of media interviews and podcasts and other things. So I, I recommend people go and read my forecasting work and my analysis in the New Republic, which, which looked at uh, this myth of disaffected Republicans flipping the suburbs. So. Yes, well, 
thank you so much. It's been very insightful this evening. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Doctor. All right. Good night, thank guys. You. Thank you. All right. Dr. Uh, Rachel Biddenkoffer, um, just that analysis that she does, obviously that model has something special that uh, showed the 2018 elections, the changes um, that were happening that other folks didn't capture. Um, and you can tell the work and analysis and insight she has. Well, Tim, we were going to let you talk about Ron DeSantis. Um, so give us your thoughts on the governor of Florida's um, response or lack thereof to this crisis. Yeah. It, it almost mirrored Trump's, didn't it? He was just frankly tardy in shutting things down. You guys remember all of those films of spring breakers just living it up on the beaches and the locals in those towns were just going out of their minds saying what is going on here what are these people doing people all over the country were saying what are these people doing and the governor simply would not shut the beaches down he still hasn't done it it's had to be done on a local level thank goodness some people have done it uh, unfortunately for him, and I was um, just looking at the stats a moment ago, Florida is really starting to get a lot of new cases. They're, they're, they're up over 900 new cases a day now. That puts them like fourth in the country in the number of new cases being added. Uh, they're about to overtake Massachusetts in the number of total cases and move into fifth and uh you know that that's only going to climb especially with with with, uh, uh, a large senior population like they have especially in a lot of those beach areas i honestly do not know what he was thinking do you Catherine? i have no idea uh i think he was uh, thinking that it wouldn't, it would be somehow contained. I think that's what a lot of people were thinking that, oh, it'll just be in the coast, you know, it'll just be in the big cities and it won't, you know, they didn't understand how this, how it, I mean, none, I think none of us fully understand how it all works, but I think most of us understood that people travel and they spread germs and, and I think, I think a lot of people were just in denial about that or didn't understand it. And he was a prime example of that. Yeah. And, and yeah, David, I, I, I was going to uh, say, and David, the, these kids then headed back to wherever they came from. Essentially, Florida launched possibly a bunch of carriers all over the country, didn't they? Exactly. It's tragic. Very well could. And now they're kind of uh, taking the other stand and they're checking driver's licenses and they're wanting to ban folks from New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut that are coming down there. And and it's because they're wanting to, you know, kind of blame, I guess, you know, DeSantis will probably blame Cuomo, blame Murphy, blame uh, Lamont. He'll blame the governors of those three states, and it was those Yankees coming down with their blue state, blah, 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 and that'll he'll deflect that way, um, which is so sad because this is kind of this party. They reject science, and they don't want government telling them what to do, and this is an epidemic where you've got to work together in a collective manner, which is government, and you have to understand medic, you know, medicine and science. Um, you have to appreciate it. You know, people are like, oh, I, I saw somebody on social media. Uh, the, the most risk-averse people around are doctors. Well, if we're not going to listen to the doctors on medical stuff, who are we going to listen to? You know, my auto mechanic might be less risk-averse, but he really doesn't know that much about the human body. He knows about the automobile. <laughs> it's, just, it's kind of mind-boggling that, that people are thinking this way. Well, let's get into the politics on Florida of this. Let's say this thing plays out, and, and it spikes like it's predicted to. We don't want it to be worse. We don't even want it to be bad at all. I mean, it would be great if something just turned and it just dissipates, kind of like a wave coming onto the beach sometimes. Um, but it probably is going to get worse, and they're going to have cases in the thousands. Um, let's say this thing plays out. 
just as bad as it has in some other states. You know, we won't use New York since that's the worst, but like let's say Florida becomes the second worst state. Catherine, how does this play in Florida politically, both in 2020 and in 2022 when DeSantis has to face the voters again? Well, I think it's really hard to predict those things right now. Um, you know, I was thinking about this before the show started. Um, I, I just think it's because we're in the middle of this. We don't know um, when we're, it's going to be over. You know, maybe uh, by the end of the summer we'll all be sort of back to some kind of um, ordinary uh, life. Um, but I just think it's really hard to know how this is going to play out politically until we see, you know, how much damage was done by waiting both for Florida and for the country. You know, how, how, you know, how many people are going to be, have, be impacted by this and how long will it last? I think I just find it, I mean, I don't think it's going to, be good be, will be good for his political um, future, but if he now responds as if things uh, get worse and he responds well, then he might be able to overcome some of that. So I just think it's really difficult. No, without knowing, you know, we're just in this difficult middle ground, like without knowing what's next. Really, it's quite scary. Yeah, I'm. Florida's a tricky state. I mean, it's a state. I mean, if we had had more time, we could ask Dr. Bittenkoffer about Florida, you know, why it's so hard to predict. But um, it's a state where where other states were moving back blue, like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, it it moved um, or stayed right and even defeated um, Bill Nelson. And so you think that, well, the trend's in his favor, but it does have a lot of elderly residents, and you would think they would be the most cautious about what's going on just because older people are more cautious and um you know they are more susceptible um you know to the worst effects of it so it's going to be um sadly interesting to see what happens let's talk about one more state before we go and that is michigan um michigan's a state that donald trump he doesn't win that state um he probably didn't win the presidency i guess there uh, there could be some math where with Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, he could have, but it was kind of a trend uh, with all three states. And yet he's – apparently there's reports he's just not sending equipment to Michigan. I mean he cannot like Governor Whitmer, but you know, that's beside the fact he's, a, he's a, you know, the president of all Americans, and he's not helping them medically. But then also politically, that's a state he needs to retain in his column is Michigan, and he's just really – uh, you know, burning that chance down. And one of the most stark examples, and credit goes to him, the Republican nominee uh, in 2018 from Michigan tweeted out total support of Gretchen Whitmer, who beat him in the 2018 election, talking about how strong she is, how she's showing leadership, and he stands 100% behind her. Mm. Uh, I thought that was incredibly classy uh, of that gentleman to do that. But, Catherine, we got to let you have the first say on this with Michigan. What's he doing to his election chances in Michigan the way he's, um, you know, using um, uh, Governor Whitmer as a punching bag? Well, I think there, it could be two things. It could be that he's got some uh, data that shows that he's not going to win there. <laughs> Excuse me. So he's, you know, giving it up. Or he's got some data that shows that her um, – her numbers are weak and that if he can weaken her further, then he can uh, eke out a win there. So I think it's one, it could be one or one or one or the other of those. Well, one more follow-up question before we get Tim's thoughts. I'm sure you are still people that live in Michigan or have you been able to find out from people that you grew up with or what have you, how are people taking this in Michigan? Well, you know, I live in a bubble. <laughs> All my everybody I know is pretty much in Michigan is uh at least as liberal as I am. Uh not everybody, but most. Um 
so they're all um, definitely uh, not happy with uh, the way Trump is treating Michigan. And in general, they like uh, Whitmer and uh, are, you know, they're legitimately frightened like the rest of us about what the future holds with this uh, COVID-19. So I don't think, I don't think it's helping him with my friends in Michigan, but like I said, my friends in Michigan are, are pretty much like me. <laughs> okay. Um, Tim, your thoughts on how he's handling Michigan? Well, I, I think back to 2016, and I think I can do a, a, all of this from memory because it's painfully burned into it. There was a little over four and a half million people voted in Michigan in 2016. And he beat her, as I recall, by 11,704 votes, which is like 23 one-hundredths of 1%. Um, And now the Democrats are probably already loading commercials in the can with the words, don't call the woman in Michigan by Donald Trump in there. Oh, my, a bunch of my Michigan friends have, like, memes about, I'm with that woman from Michigan. Yeah, there we, there we go. And every model I've seen, and I know y'all have seen a lot of them, the, the best case scenario for Trump's Michigan's a toss-up state, or, or like in uh, Dr. Bittekoffer's uh, model, uh, you know, he's he's just outright losing Michigan. I I think he is in big, big trouble. African-Americans underperformed by about 10 points in Michigan in 2016. If they come to the polls, and I believe they're going to be coming this time because they're as angry as the rest of us, he's going to lose that state. There are 16 electoral votes that he's just throwing away for no reason. And the thing is, it's not even like he had to make a political choice. He could have just made the right human choice. Just shut well, his yeah, mouth. Yeah. Been on the, See, been that's on all the he right has side. to ever do. Just shut his stupid mouth, and he wouldn't get into this stuff. Yeah. Well, Catherine, one final thought on this. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, she's been mentioned this week after um, all of this because she fits the criterion that Joe Biden said. Um, she's, uh, you know, a female elected official. How much do you think she's rising up the, the VP slot? Oh, you know, I, I just want to say right now, I don't want us moving anybody out of their good jobs where we need them. <laughs> That's what I want Kamala to stay in the Senate. I want Amy to stay in the Senate. I want Elizabeth Warren to stay in the Senate. I want Whitmer to stay as governor. Let's Decide it's going to be Stacey Abrams. I mean, I, really, I'm serious. Works for I me. To, <laughs> I don't want to have to elect, it, you know, have some special election for a senator or for a governor. I, I, I'm, I'm really serious about this. Like, let's just keep everybody in their places on the board and bring somebody new in, like Stacey Abrams. Well, That's I, what I, I saw a ranking on that, and they had 11 people rated. And the person that rated was not – I mean, this is somebody that probably, you know, respects Stacey's work. But they said, you know, she's only been the minority leader, a state representative, and this crisis is showing that you need somebody with executive experience. And Joe Biden honestly doesn't have – I guess vice president, you know, is. Yeah. But he, did, he was yeah. a senator other than that. So does it make it where even Kamala Harris, you know, she's – been attorney general and u.s senate amy klobuchar i think she has the same profile attorney general u.s senate do you need now a governor and that brings the list down to about three people um that are currently elected official governors that are democratic and female uh, does that make it where you need this governor now because of this no. you know what's happening mm. no no, no. no. prove <laughs> that you don't need all of that well, himself in well, 2016 well, well, and 
Well, Tim, and, then you made the other and, argument. If you're using Ch- Trump as your example, yeah, yeah but, sure, he can get elected, but he can be crappy but, at it when he gets elected. But, but, but and, 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 she can possibly deliver not only Georgia, but two U.S. Senate seats. And you talk about somebody that will fire progressives up. I have seen this live and in person. Believe me, she'll bring progressives along for the ride. The Bernie Sanders voters will love her. I think she'd be an excellent choice. I got to say, hurting the cats and the Georgia House of of Representatives is an executive position. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's Well, I mean, that was the only Democratic side. She didn't have to – I mean, she did do a good job working across the aisle with Nathan Deal. But as far as – she didn't have to hurt the – you know the other cats on the other side of the okay, aisle. Okay, so hurting um, the Democrat, the yeah. Democratic, the Democrat, the Democrats in the Georgia House, it was quite a challenge for her sometimes, and she had, mm. you know, she rose above it many times. So I don't, I don't really buy that the only place you can get executive experience is as a governor. I think I, I don't, I don't buy that. And I just thought well, she I mean, was ready for prime time. So you, I do you can get as a mayor, um, which the, and, and gosh, there's just too much. There's just not enough time. But I'm going to bring up one more thing, and then we got to move on to close to wrap it up. But um, Jim Clyburn mentioned Atlanta Mayor um, Lisa um, uh, Keisha, Keisha Keisha Bottoms Keisha Lance. Ke- yeah, I know I'm mixing. I know there, there were so many candidates that ran. I'm putting them together. Oh, there were uh, so Keisha many Keisha Lance Bottoms. There's so he many mentioned her. Yeah, he mentioned her um, as a possible um, VP nominee. I, I mean, honestly, I, di- I didn't quite see it because she's only been on the job a little bit of time. I don't think she's got much of a profile, <coughs> really, even outside of the city of Atlanta, um, because I really hadn't heard her speak that many times until that town hall they were, that was on Thursday night. But but I saw her get mentioned um, just like a – Super quick thought, each of y'all on yeah. um, Keisha Lance Bottoms. I, I don't I think she's Abrams. got the. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't have the. Um, I, I mean, the name ID or the. That's right. Um, the chop. Right. A- Abrams. Well, does. And, and here, I don't. I really don't think he's going to pick her anyway. But if he were to pick her. There's your seat that uh, Stacey Stacey Abrams could run for. She could run for mayor of Atlanta and use that as the stepping stone because I think she'd be a shoe in to win uh, mayor of Atlanta if that seat came open. So um, just a a side there. Well, a lot of show tonight. We went a little long. Sorry about that, but you maybe have extra time on your hands to listen to the extra six, seven minutes. But until next week, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, night, y'all. Take care. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in...